You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Three United States senators were opening up Pandora's box. I think the system in this country is getting off the rails, and we have to be careful not to use the legal system as a political tool. Senator Lindsey Graham says he did nothing wrong in the face of the special grand jury report that recommended indictments against Graham and several other prominent Republicans. The special purpose Atlanta grand jury investigated 2020 election meddling for more than two years, hearing testimony from 75 witnesses. And in the report made public on Friday, it recommended indictments against twice as many people as the 19 ultimately charged by Fulton County prosecutor Fannie Willis in her racketeering case. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, 13 grand jurors voted to indict Graham, while seven voted not to. The vote was 17 to 4 to indict former Georgia Senator David Perdue and 14 to 6 to indict former Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler. What does it tell you that the DA decided not to indict them? Well, I I think the fact that there were a substantial number of members of the grand jury in each of these three cases that voted no raised the possibility that there could be reasonable doubt if criminal charges were brought against these three senators, if they went to trial, that members of the trial jury might likewise agree that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. And when we're talking about a trial jury, all you need is one hold out, one no, and so the prosecutor, in this case, deciding to not bring criminal charges with respect to some of the individuals that were under investigation. Can this information help either the defense or the prosecution, either at trial or... I don't know that it does. I think from a broader perspective, there are a couple of interesting takeaways for me. I mean, first of all, the fact that as many as 13 members of the special grand jury believed that Senator Graham had engaged in criminal conduct specifically to influence the outcome of the presidential election on its face is very disturbing. I mean, very disturbing. And, and then, you know, again, several members of the special grand jury reached a similar result with respect to these two other Georgia senators. And then for me, you know, one other aspect of this is that three other individuals that, again, there were grand jurors 
that wanted to indict. Ultimately, they were not indicted. Were lawyers, and we got Boris Epstein, Cleta Mitchell, Lynn Wood. These are lawyers, and this is in addition to the Fulton County indictment that has charged 19 individuals, eight of which were lawyers. And so as a lawyer and a law professor, this is very disturbing that we have lawyers that are involved, you know, directly, indirectly, implicated directly, indirectly in criminal activity involving overturning a presidential election. I mean, it's just it's an embarrassment. It's shameful for the legal profession. And in the meantime, the clock is ticking toward the trial date of at least two of those attorneys in the Georgia RICO case against Donald Trump and 18 accused co-conspirators for allegedly trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential elections. And defendants Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell asked for a speedy trial, but not together. But on Wednesday, the trial judge, Scott McAfee, ruled that they would be tried together. So based on what's been presented today, I, I, I'm not finding the severance uh, from Mr. Chesbro or Powell is necessary to achieve a fair determination of the guilt or innocence for either defendant in this case. Jimmy, the prosecutors say there'll be testimony from 150 witnesses and they want all 19 defendants tried together and that it will take about four months. The judge said more like twice that. You've tried RICO cases. What do you think? It's hard to imagine a case involving the testimony from 150 witnesses could be conducted in that short period of time. And the principal concern is not simply the number of witnesses, that's a major concern, but the fact that you have 19 defendants that are going to have the opportunity to cross-examine each and every one of those witnesses. So every time the state puts on a witness, they conduct their direct examination. Then when it gets to cross-examination, conceivably 19 defense lawyers would have questions to ask of that witness. And that could take days, weeks even to complete that process. And then if there's a redirect, again, on recross, 19 defense lawyers have an opportunity to recross the same witness now once again. And so it seems almost unmanageable to me as to how a trial of that magnitude with that many defense lawyers, with that many defendants in the courtroom is going to function in any efficient way. Fonnie Willis, in the teacher's case, tried 12 defendants. So how does the judge decide what number is reasonable? It's difficult. You know, it's a difficult decision. And I found rather curious the argument that both Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, their lawyers, have been making, which is something along the lines of, well, my client doesn't know Sidney Powell, and my client wasn't involved in the activities that Sidney Powell was allegedly involved in. Well, that doesn't matter. My response to that is, so what? Because the law on conspiracy is clear that each co-conspirator, it's not required that each co-conspirator know the identity of every other co-conspirator in the conspiracy, nor is it required that each conspirator know all of the details of the conspiracy. It's enough that the conspirator agreed with someone else or others to commit to the objective and the purpose and the goal of the conspiracy. And then that's a conspiracy. That becomes a crime in and of itself. And then the rule is that all of the overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy, no matter who commits them, are attributable 
and, and applicable to every other member of the conspiracy. And so it just isn't a good legal argument that they don't know one another and they didn't work together in the conspiracy. It's not a justification for severing the defendants. I think the stronger argument is this case is so massive, the evidence is going to be so confusing, so overwhelming, that it's going to be difficult for the jurors to compartmentalize it all. But even then, the counter-argument is, well, even if you try them separately, the argument's going to be they're part of the conspiracy, and therefore the prosecutor's going to argue that this evidence of other overt acts and other crimes committed by other members of the conspiracy, that's relevant, and it's admissible against every other member of the conspiracy. Therefore, it's relevant, and we should be able to present it at the trial, even if it's only a trial of two defendants, Chesborough and Sidney Powell. So prosecutors said they expected to put on the same lengthy case against any of the defendants who are tried separately. Would they really put on the same exact evidence if they just had, let's say, Chesborough and Powell and maybe John Eastman tried? Would they really put all that on? I think technically speaking, Fonnie Willis can make that argument. And again, the argument would be that they're members of the conspiracy, these two individuals, Chesborough and Powell, and therefore crimes committed by the other 17 members and overt acts committed by the other 17 members of the conspiracy are relevant and they're admissible against these two defendants, Chesborough and Powell. So that argument, you know, has some legal basis, but I think where I really struggle is that from a practical standpoint, I just don't know how you manage a trial of 19 defendants Again, with this opportunity of every every defendant having the opportunity to cross-examine every government witness and potentially multiple times and have that trial be completed in, in four months, it, it just doesn't seem feasible. The judge didn't seem to think it was feasible either, but he has to make a decision. He has some defendants who ask for a speedy trial, others who say they need more time. Could he really force those other defendants to go to trial in six weeks? Well, he could try to do that, but there's going to be an objection, of course, by the other defendants. They're going to say, well, we need more time. You know, the amount of discovery, there are actually 161 overt acts that are listed, set forth in the Fulton County indictment. We need more time to prepare to rebut that evidence. And so then it becomes more of a constitutional due process argument that if we go to trial on October 23rd, as Fannie Willis is proposing, we're just not going to have time to prepare for trial, and therefore the trial is going to violate our due process fundamental fairness rights. What I thought was interesting is the prosecutor argued that not only would this be inconvenient and perhaps traumatic for witnesses to testify more than once, but also that it would give an advantage to the defendants who were tried later, and that gives the appearance that the system isn't fair. That's a very good argument by the by the prosecution. There's no question that the prosecution will be disadvantaged if this trial, 19 defendants, is broken up into multiple trials, because even in the first trial, 
if Fannie Willis is correct and the court permits her to put on 150 witnesses, then the other 17 defendants are going to have an opportunity to hear that testimony, review that testimony, and then uh, prepare other evidence to rebut that testimony in their trial. And then there's always the danger when a witness testifies more than once that there are going to be some inconsistencies, likely some inconsistencies in the testimony. They're not robots, and so their testimony isn't going to necessarily be exactly word for word verbatim from one trial to another. And so any inconsistencies, of course, are going to be seized on by the defense lawyers to impeach the credibility of those witnesses. And then, of course, that, again, you know, jeopardizes the state's case. That hurts the state's case as well. The attorneys for Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro seem to be competing for which defendant had more evidence against them and would be more disadvantaged by being tried together. Does that indicate there might be conflicting defenses when they're tried together? Well, there could be. And there's already kind of some murmurings to that effect at the hearing where uh, Chaz Burroughs' attorney is kind of pointing to and saying, you know, we weren't involved in the crazy stuff that Sidney Powell's doing. And so it's kind of, again, we're beginning to see the co-defendants pointing the finger at one another. That, of course, I think actually benefits the prosecution. But it's complicated in terms of if the court decides that 19 defendants tried in a single trial is just unmanageable, then the question is, well, how do you divide it up? Do you divide the the trial up based upon groups of defendants that were engaged and involved in similar criminal activity, such as the fake elector scheme? Let's try all of those defendants together. And then with respect to other defendants that were involved in other kind of unique aspects of the subplots of the broader conspiracy, we'll try them separately. It could very well fall along those lines. So at the end of the day, well, certainly we know it's not going to be a single trial because Chesborough and Powell are going to be tried separately. But with respect to the remaining 17 defendants, I think it's conceivable that they could be divided up by the court based upon kind of their criminal activity that's similar in kind. And that could result in maybe two or three additional separate trials. Chesbro's attorney said the prosecutors clearly want Trump sitting at the table with the other defendants. So I thought, yes. Yeah, so what? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So that's not unusual. I mean, in, in any conspiracy, you certainly want the head of the criminal enterprise, you know, at the table. I mean, you want all of the defendants that were involved in the criminal enterprise to be at the table. The practical reality is, though, it, at some point, it just becomes unwieldy and unmanageable if the scope of the conspiracy is so broad and encompasses so many participants, so many co-conspirators as this particular enterprise does, that it just becomes unwieldy and unmanageable to have them tried in a single criminal trial. Do you think the judge was right in refusing to sever Powell and Chesborough's trials? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that there's a compelling due process argument that if you try the two of them together, that somehow that's going to violate the due process rights of Chesborough and Powell. And the court said so much. You know, the court on the record made that point. He just was not convinced that it would be unfair to try the two of them together. So I think that decision and that ruling is a sound ruling. 
What I'm waiting to see is what he decides. I think he gave Fannie Willis, the prosecutor, until Tuesday to file some additional materials and arguments on having all of the defendants tried together on October 23. I think he's probably going to reject that argument. And then the question is, how is he going to divide up the rest of the defendants? And I think it's likely going to be two or three additional separate trials. Thanks so much, Jimmy. That's Professor Jimmy Garule of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.